Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we're throwing this one back, all the way back, way back to 2015. This is episode six overall, and, you know, very different than a lot of those early episodes. Pretty good sound quality on this one with Alan Carl. China, Europe, Iceland, travel by motorcycle and the people you meet. Very early episode for us, like I said. Number six of all time. Uh, now we're replaying it over 900 episodes later. And this is one of those rare episodes that Travis was the host. So you're going to enjoy it. Uh, maybe we should catch up with Alan, see what he's been doing ever since. And uh, remember, always remember, if you have someone that you think would be a good guest for the show, go to our website, adventuresportspodcast.com. There is a link at the top. You can suggest a guest. We get submissions all the time, always looking for more. And uh, we love to hear from y'all, our listeners. So, all right, let's go ahead and jump in. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Well, our longtime listeners might remember my next guest. He was on episode six almost two years ago, back in March of 2015, and he's Alan Carl, world rider. If you guys recall, Alan was on the show talking about his motorcycle exploits around the world, where he rode 62,000 miles through more than 60 countries. Um, it took him three years to do it. And he wrote an awesome book about it. Uh, the book is Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. And if you guys remember, it was all about the recipes that he found all around the world. So, Alan, first of all, welcome back to the show. Hey, Travis. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's going to be great to catch up with you. So, um, Forks, let's talk about that just a little bit. You've been on a book tour. Uh, I saw that you had uh, outfitted a, a cool uh, Mercedes Sprinter and drove across the country working on uh, your book sales. So tell me a little bit about that. How's that been going? Well, the, the book really you know, hit it hit great. You know, I, in Memorial Day of 2014, that weekend, I was on uh, Good Morning America, which really was a great launch to um, getting that book out and really brought uh, you know my story, the book, and the whole idea of not only motorcycle adventuring, but also you know connecting with people over food in a, in a travel scenario to a very wide audience. And I did, yeah, I found a, a used Mercedes-Benz Sprinter, a 2011 model, and wrapped it with graphics all around from the book, photographs. I mean, this is dynamic. You got the book cover on it. You got pictures from people from Africa, South America, and Asia on this. And you know, it's hard uh, to stop somewhere when I do drive that, and people just have these curious eyes and want to <laughs> know, what is this? And one time, because it says fork, somebody comes up, is this a food truck? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> but yeah, I, I bopped across the country on that probably about three or four times. You know, the, the endless uh, nomad in me. If I'm not on a motorcycle, I do like to be traveling. Although certainly on a, uh, in a Mercedes Sprinter, there's a, you know, it's a diesel. It's not a super powerful machine and um, kind of uh, – uh, sticking to the interstate so not the most uh culturally uh you know interesting trip but i do <laughs> at these events I, the way i did them travis is you know their bookstores are hard to find anymore right and I, I i did you know there's a um there's a great independent bookstore in cincinnati there's another one in um 
in Northern California that's very focused on travel up in um, you know in Marin County and uh, so so of the really cool lasting bookstores I did do events I usually speak and sign books but I I wanted to go and do things like festivals like um, uh, these these public markets that are becoming a real um, you know uh, you know development trend in um, in, in many markets, I mean, in 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 Washington D.C., I think they've got the Union Market in uh, Columbus, Ohio. It's North Market. There's one in Charlotte. Um, I can't remember the name of that one, and and in Detroit. So I uh, these are where small, independent, you know, it's almost like a farmers market full time with with uh, with the cover on it. So you've got people selling produce, cheese. There's um, uh, people serving food and you always little independent local people. And, um, and I did a lot of them. It, it was, uh, great to just get out there and I continue to do it. I, I, I literally get, a uh, sometimes I get calls. The book's been out almost two years now, over two years now. And, um, if I can kind of cluster a few events together, I'll, I'll load the motorcycle in the back of the van with a pallet of books and go and do a, and do an event. And as a result of all that kind of promotion, um, you know, we're moving into our third printing of the book now. Really? Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about the book and uh, before we get into your your latest travels since the last time we talked. So for those that uh, haven't heard your episode from way back in March of 2015, uh, give us a rundown of what the book is. Yeah. So Forks, uh, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. It's um, it's a coffee table book. It's a hardcover book. It's full cover. It's you know a little oversized. It's 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 one of those great picture books. So it, it's the my my original concept was to not just write a story about me and my adventures around the world in a travelogue memoir kind of format. I thought really the way to to bring this journey, these experiences I had to people that either are dreaming of their own adventures or maybe never will have the opportunity, but to Bring them the world through uh, stories of people and connection through the narrative in the book. It, to let them see the world through the pictures and the um, you know great. I mean, there's probably 600 photographs in this book. You know, there's a lot of big ones and a lot of little smaller ones. And then, of course, to taste these countries. So I, uh, the book covers five continents. Uh, and 35 countries, and each country is represented by a story, by the photographs, and a recipe. And usually, that recipe, Travis, is the is the unique um, kind of staple, if it would, the national dish of that country. And um, you know, the idea is sit down, you know, with your friend, with your family, or with strangers, and cook a meal together from a country that you probably maybe never even will go. Um, and Learn a little bit about it. There's some facts about each country in my book, but there's a, but there is my little story of my experience in that country, and then that recipe. And this way, it's more of an experiential book as opposed to just a reading book. And much to my friends who um, who will admit, Alan, um, you know I don't really like to read that much. So thank you. At least now I can look at the pictures. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, whether or not they ever take that into the kitchen. But uh, I, I like to say that this this book looks as good as on your uh, coffee table as it does on your kitchen table while you're cooking up uh, one of those dishes. Yeah, and it absolutely does. I have a copy of the book. And what a way to to dream your way around the world if you can't uh, get out there and travel 
right now, then, you know, this is what a great book to pop open and just kind of live a little bit of each country. You did a great job with uh, not only the photography, but, you know, the write-ups of your experiences in each country. Yeah, there's uh, there's lots of stories. There's, uh, you know, of course, the the uh, denouement of the, of the journey in Bolivia when I uh, was on a muddy dirt road and the bike slid out from under me. I landed in the mud in my motorcycle, 400 pounds plus about 100 pounds of what I carried with me, comes crashing down on top of me and crushes my leg, putting a, a, a good um, you know, half a year interruption to my journey to, to fly back, get medevac back to the U S and heal and then get back on the road again. So, uh, so there's, there, there's, there's that kind of, those kinds of stories. And then there's stories of like a, you know, a, a 80 year old woman in Ecuador who's trudging up a steep hill, carrying a couple, um, you know, uh, jugs of water that are you know, probably five gallons each. You know how much water is. And, right. and she's 80 years old, but walks up this hill effortlessly. And, uh, you know, we sit and have an amazing conversation on the side of the road as I uh, learn more about her, you know, the indigenous, you know, uh, people that, that, uh, the, that she's part of, uh, this community of indigenous people. And, um, and there's great photos and she ends up modeling for me and next to my motorcycle in the book. So you got some really interesting photos and, you know, it's, it's one of those, um, traveling solo, like I do alone, it puts you in more of a, um, chance, more possibilities to connect with people that you would probably not connect with if you were traveling in a group or even with one other, because mm -hmm. usually you might just talk to each other and, 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 um, you know, have your own dual experience. And also when you're with a, with a group or a couple people, uh, other people may be, um, less likely to walk up to you for fear of, you know, I don't want to interrupt these two people. So when you're alone, the experience changes a lot. And that story in Ecuador is just one of those examples. Yeah, absolutely. So you've put, uh, you've put many more miles than just, just book. I think you're in, you know, 75, 80,000 miles at this point on a motorcycle. What drives you to do it? What is it you get out of it? It's obviously not just the, the motor and the wheels and twisting a throttle. There's obviously something else here. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, like, like any enthusiast group, you know, whether you're a bicyclist or you're a, um, you know, kayaker or you're a photographer or, you know, you collect cars. I mean, every, you know, everybody's got different passions and, you know, that, you know, that is, is something you become an expert in. You come in. It's, but for me, motorcycling is one of many passions because I am also a photographer and I write. Uh, so, so for me, it's not the bike itself. It's more about what the bike represents. I mean, yeah, I love the feeling of the wind in my face. The, you know, the, the, the ultimate freedom machine is a motorcycle. You got nothing surrounding you. You got panoramic views and it's easy to get in and out of traffic. It's easy to, to stop. It's so easy to find a parking space, you know, um, and to me, there's no better way to travel because that metaphor of being open is how I travel is I'm very open. I'm, I'll just stop on the side of the road. I was in, um, in, um, Romania this past summer 
And I went through like three or four little tiny towns. And as I was, you know, buzzing through on the bike, I was just kind of, I had a destination. But on the side of the road were these elderly women selling onions and garlic. And finally, when I got to the third town, I'm like, you know, this is it. I, I, I got to stop and talk to one of these women. And I pulled over on the side of the road. And the next thing you know, I've got a I've got I'm surrounded by three different women. They all, you know, <laughs> sell the exact same things. They live next to each other across the street. And, um, you know, they, they're wearing clothes that you could tell that they've made. They didn't run down to um, to the department store or to Walmart or anything to go buy those. It's it was just so rich. So so it's that kind of experience to be on a bike, to be able to pull over and stop anytime you want. If you go and travel um, and take a tour bus or you fly from one destination and, you know, and, and take a tour, it, it, it's my opinion, you miss out on really what makes travel so fulfilling and, and enriching to your experience. And that is local people, local food, uh, not just checking off things from your bucket list. Yeah, I want to see the Eiffel Tower, the Grand Canyon, this and that. I, I call that checklist tourism. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my my thing is, I you know, I love museums. I love going into these great old medieval cathedrals and, um, and, and things like that, like when I'm in Europe or tra traveling through, you know, uh, spectacular deserts of South America. But the and, and museums, but I'm, I'm less likely in 10 years to remember that painting that maybe moved me for a moment in a museum in Paris, let's say, than I am to remember that lady, those ladies selling garlic and onions and the side of the road. That is going to be a memory or being invited into a, you know, a rondola grass hut and eating on the floor with locals in Kenya. I, I'm going to remember that so much more than I am going to be the, um, you know, the hippo I saw couple days before. Um, so, so to me, it's really that, that people and that connection and there's no better way than the motorcycle. And, you know, it can be hard. I was in Norway and Finland and Scandinavia this past summer and it rained and it rained and it rained and, and there's nothing <laughs> fun about riding a motorcycle in the rain, even when you have the right gear. You, the rain always finds its way in. You get wet, damp, and it's just not fun. And uh, But you deal with it because those experiences of connecting with people and, and going into the wild yonder um, when the weather is good is so much overshadows that uh, pain in the neck that uh, that wet rain, rainy ride is. Yeah, it's miserable while it lasts, but it makes for uh, great memories and great stories. No doubt about yes. that. Yes, yeah. You know my um, my rain suit that I have. It's like a big. Uh, that's a big plastic bag, really. At the end of the day, you know, or a <laughs> nylon thing, you know, and it's yeah. yellow, you know, so it's like you know a high vis yellow. And so when I have this thing on, and there's a picture of me uh, that I had somebody take when I was at the Arctic Circle and. Um, in uh in norway this past summer um and i just look at it whenever i see that i say god i just look like a banana on a motorcycle <laughs> yeah but everybody <laughs> sees a banana <laughs> that's not that's a bad right. thing <laughs> that's funny so connecting with people is obviously a, a big you know important thing to you um and it's something that many of us if not most of us are guilty of i know i'm somebody that really does need to slow down and smell the roses per se, you know, and, and talk to people. Um, it's, I'm guilty of that just rolling through and seeing the sights and, and being in 
the adventure for myself and not so much for the connection with people. So it's something that I personally want to work on after listening to stories like yours. What would you say to to people who that who probably need to break out of their shell a bit? You know, after being on the road for for so many miles and so many years, what would your advice to those people be? Well, the, 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 there's probably three things, Travis, and you hit the first one right away, and it, it is important to slow down. Um, so, so first, slow down and put on your curiosity. Um, you know, or I, I say increase your curiosity quotient. There you go, to get a little alliteration in there. Because if you start to wonder a little bit, and start asking questions about your environment, you know, as, as opposed to, um, as I say, checking things off your list. Yeah, I want to go and and do this, that, and the other thing. If you if you start looking around and and being more observing, think of yourself as a writer, a photographer, and and not just to to get the ubiquitous selfie of you in a famous spot or something like that. But but let's say you you put on this curiosity, you know, increase your curiosity quotient and, and start to ask questions and wonder. And the, the, the things like, like me just seeing the, um, these, these, these onions and garlic coming back to that story, just to kind of bring full circle, hanging from sticks in front of these people's houses, you know, uh, everybody else was plowing through there. And, and for, for me, it's like, I'm curious, number one, how many do they sell a day? So I'm always asking, you know, you know, I'm wondering, I wonder, um, you know, does everybody price it the same way? Cause you know, they're all the same and are they all growing the same thing? So, so with a bit of curiosity and certainly, you know, some openness now, you know, if you're inherently shy, it can be difficult just to go up to people. But I, I, I say to people that are shy is that, you know, um, the, the, the icebreaker in any case where you can just you know, if you just ask somebody a question about about them, you know, maybe not so much asking for directions to this, like, what are you doing? You you will find people will open up and, you know, the next thing you know, you're going to be invited into somebody's house for coffee or you're going to be invited in for dinner or they're going to say, oh, you you ride a motorcycle. Do you know Jerry down at the, uh, you know, two blocks down on the left? He is you know, got a garage full of motorcycles, go see him and, and you'll see the world kind of open up. So, so slow down, ask questions, wonder and approach people. And then the, and then the third thing is try not to get too tied to an itinerary. Right. Um, this is where I think everybody tries to do, and I'm guilty too, trust me. I'm, I, I did 16 countries in four months this summer, and and there's some places I just didn't have time. But but I didn't have an itinerary. That that's why some places get a little shorter, get a little longer. If you have that ability to be a little flexible, and you need to build that flexibility into your itinerary, don't you know have a blank day in there where you're not doing anything. Don't sign up for a tour. Don't try to say, you know, we're going to do this, and then in the afternoon we're eating lunch here, and then the next thing you know, if you just are more organic in your in your in your travels you're going to find that things are going to fill that time that are so much more rewarding and you could have never planned for and could have never happened on a tour and and that's it so those would be the three things i think for for people to to be more open to connecting and with people and um 
you know, if there's a bonus one, you know, if you uh, every once in a while, even if you're traveling in a in a group, is take some time. You know, if you're on a on a on a more than a week vacation, is take some time alone. You know, you, you know, you know, Break everybody away. kind of have a little bit of an opportunity to explore, and then when you come together over coffee, tea, or wine, or a dinner later, everybody in your group can share that experience, and and that that's another way to you know really start to have a more uh, fulfilling or richer experience in travel. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So let's talk about your equipment a little bit. Um, it looks like you're still riding the the same bike. That yeah. You... It's called Doc. <laughs> the Doc. Yeah. Why is, uh, why is this bike called Doc? Well, it's a, it's the, it's a BMW. It's, it's Jesus, 12 years old now, 2005. And it's a Dakar and Dakar is the capital of Senegal city in Africa. And made famous for the uh, classic overland uh, off-road race called the Paris to Dakar, Paris to Dakar, which no longer takes place in uh, Europe and Africa. Now it takes place in South America mm -hmm. as a result of some terrorist attacks in uh, 2007 in Mauritania. So, so since 2008 or nine, I think they had a year off, they've uh, had this race there. So the bike is um, is an off-road, it's a dual sport bike and um, BMW. So I just, you know, I don't, you know, I, I it's not like, well, I don't want to give it a lady's name. I don't want to give it a guy's name. It's Dakar, but it's like Doc, you know, this is my trusty <laughs> Doc. That's it's fitting. a Dakar. So it's just short for Dakar. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So why uh, why is it you chose this particular bike? This is a, a BMW F650 GS Dakar. Um, yeah. Why this one? Why this size? Yeah. So I, um, as you know, as we talked about, I do like to go a little bit slower. I don't need a really big bike. There, there, the roads outside these great roads of the u.s that are paved and smooth and perfectly cambered and banked and and that once you leave this uh this this wonderful continent and, and if you're not in europe you know europe's got some great roads too you know you got roads that are either crumbling or it's just dirt or you got to go in sand and i um you know the the i want a lighter bike i mean bmw makes a great it's the 1200 gs you know uh, uh adventure bike is a is a bike you see a lot of people they've gotten really popular but to me it's too big you know the 650 is a single cylinder in a motorcycle world we call it a thumper so it's a dual sport thumper and it um it, it weighs about uh, almost 200 pounds less than that 1200 and you know and i always you know i've got i'm loaded up pretty good so i can't i can't go crazy like i am racing the dakar because i'm still you know i've got to carry my cameras and my 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 computer and and all spare parts and things but it's it's just the right size for me that i can load my gear there's a lot of um uh aftermarket products available that i can bolt on and into this bike to give it a little bit more durability so it will endure these crazy roads that i'm talking about and the second thing that the bmw um still sells a 650 the my bike uh as it is the dakar no longer exists they they now make a gs 800 which is a two-cylinder but essentially it's it's just about the same weight about the same size maybe a tad bigger than mine uh the 650 but the key thing on that 800 uh, gs and mine is, compared to the 
the traditional 650, the non-Dakar um, model, and the uh, the 650 that uh, BMW currently sells now, is that uh, mine's got a 21-inch front tire, whereas yeah. these other motorcycles have a 19-inch front yeah, tire. And you might think, difference. well, what does two inches make? Uh, how can it make that much of a difference? But it does, because as you're rolling over rough roads, you've got that much extra surface area you know, uh, and on, on the ground. So you go over a pothole, it can make a, a, a pothole with a 19 inch or, or just a big divot in the road. It can smooth it out compared to the, to the 19 inch. So that, that's the other thing I like. And it's also got a higher suspension and I've modified it. So it's in, and, and, and I'm five foot eight, so I'm not a tall guy. And, but yet I still can't put both of my feet flat on the ground. I can almost <laughs> yeah. barely tiptoe and people go, Oh my God, you know, and there's all kinds of products and people try to lower these bikes. But the problem when you lower them is you may get that, you know, that little comfort level of being able to stand on the uh, flats of your feet while you're straddling the bike. But you know, when you do have rough roads, that that suspension is going to travel quite a bit. So that extra travel is important, so you're not bottoming out. Yeah. Particularly, you're carrying a lot of weight. So all those factors, you know, is is why I like the 650 and the Dakar model. Well, it must have been the the right choice. You took it uh, 62,000 miles to uh, around the the three years that uh, that Forks is built around, and you've uh, traveled quite a few more miles after it. You never decided to change it after that trip, so it was a good choice, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's right now it's got almost a hundred thousand miles on it, and um, and and I I'm trying to think how many miles this past summer uh, I did, but it was probably sixteen, eighteen thousand miles. Um, so yeah, it's still going, and there's no sign of uh, you know, any, um, at least from the engine's point of view, <laughs> that uh, it's 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 trugging hard. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to know that since the last time you and I talked, I uh, I've drank the uh, the BMW Kool Aid and bought myself a, an F800 GS, and uh, okay. spend many nice. adventure around Colorado on that on that bike, and I absolutely love it. It's a fantastic. And you've bike. got some great, great off-road uh, roads. You know, even just the fire roads are fun on that mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah, that's great. I didn't know. All right, so you're you're an 800. So essentially, you got the the um, you know the more modern model of uh, of my bike. So that's good. Yep. Love that bike. Absolutely. What nope. color? Good bikes. What I color? Got is that yours? platinum gray. Ah, nice. Yep. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yep, I like that bike. All right. So let's talk about what you've been up to since the last time. Now we covered the book and covered the bike. Where is it Alan Carl has been? I heard some inklings about you uh, filming some uh, some footage over in China and up in Iceland for uh, trying to present a, a pilot for a, a documentary. So first of all, let's talk about China. I think that's the first place you went since the last time I talked to you. Yeah, so China, summer 2015. Um Spent a month, a little more than a month in China, and, and the idea there was to ride the bike from border to border, uh, you know, at least, you know, since since the, the bike had to be shipped into China, into Shanghai, you know, the, the it would be just the international border, and then and ride it as far north, we went uh, north of Beijing, all the way down to the Vietnamese border at a place called, a place where there is the um Detian waterfalls it's the um i guess it's the largest waterfall in southern china um and that 
that that river there, the Detian River, marks the uh, the the border between Vietnam and China. And I was contacted by a production company who wanted to make a travel show and start it in China, but ultimately uh, film around the world. Um, and their their concept, they didn't specifically look for a. a motorcycle rider they were looking for somebody who travels with a single mode of transportation and uh, as they did their googling and they found me found the book and um and we went and um and it's a lot different you know i went on a little while ago travis talking about uh, how important it is to travel alone to be open now i now i got to kind of recreate <laughs> this experience but i got a film crew yeah, right. following me and on top of that you got the barriers that i always had in um in language and culture but you know sometimes yeah i i just want to go and get things moving but you've got people with cameras and they've got uh sound men and you've got you know a translator and oh my goodness sometimes like herding cats i just want to ride and um oh and they're all dealing but, with technology which you know can always implode on us at any moment exactly exactly <laughs> this was fantastic i had been to china um you know, many years before, not on the motorcycle. So this was an opportunity to uh, continue that world rider, that forks journey, uh, in a in a you know probably one of the most culturally diverse, uh, you know, from the ethnic minorities in the South to the infusion of uh, uh, um, you know the 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 Chinese history in the North, you know, from Xi'an and Beijing, uh, craziest largest one of the largest countries or uh, cities in the world, uh, but, but a little bit more historical, at least in the, in the center ring compared with Shanghai, which is really a, a more modern city. That was a fishing village just a hundred years ago. Hmm. Um, and it is, uh, it has grown to be this, you know, Mecca of, of modern and talk about technology. Um, it, 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 incredible thing. And then, and then I get to go out of these cities on the rural roads and, and ran into a village where I met a, um, a gentleman in, in he's, he's making traditional Chinese wood block printing. So basically takes a block of wood, carves it by hand. And, and by the way, he makes, uh, these are like four five, six color, um, uh, you know, drawings or, or, or ink, ink, you know, wood block prints that he's making. And, and he's, he hand carves each different color and it keeps it in perfect registration. And, you know, talking with him, I learned that, you know, he's been doing this for six, six generations. His family's been doing this traditional, um, sharing Chinese folklore, Chinese stories. I, I think of it as, as the Hans Christian Andersen, um, or Aesop's fables, right. Of China. And, uh, the, their, their, you know, pictorials, you know, just basically stories told through pictures. Right. And, um, and, you know, he's, he's making these, you know, beautiful prints, he, making the inks, you know, from with natural pigments. So this is, uh, you know, he's not running down to the Aaron brothers and picking up some ink or whatever. He's, he's makes everything from there, even the paper. Um, he doesn't actually make the paper, but he gets it from a guy that, that makes the paper as well, the parchment. And he's got in 2008 during the Beijing Olympics, the Chinese government recognized him, did a little bit of an exhibition and used some of his 
you know, woodblock prints on programs oh, very uh, cool. for that Olympics. And then I traveled all the way down, as I, I said, to the Detian waterfalls. Um, but on the way there, stopping in um, in the Guilin, uh, which is in the Guanxi, Guanxi, I get the province. I, I may have that wrong, but but outside of Guilin, there's these rice terraces. I mean, there's rice terraces beautiful all over Southeast Asia. But here you're now in the south. It's more the um, uh, the, the tropical part of uh, of China and uh, these beautiful manicured rice terraces uh, that, again, families have been keeping these things for almost a thousand years. And I meet a, a woman who belongs to uh, the Hong uh, ethnic minority there. She stands about four feet, six inches. She's probably 77 years old. And, um, and, you know, her family, she doesn't actually work in the rice fields anymore because it's it, bending over in those, in those rice fields is, is too difficult. But you know, what she does is, is there are, there are some hotels that you can, tourist people can come and look at them, but you can't get your cars to them. You can get your cars to a certain area. That's probably about, you know, half a mile to a mile away, depending on where your hotel is. And she's got a bamboo backpack that's strapped to her pack and she carries people's suitcases up and i'm like you kidding you you can't bend down and fix that <laughs> ice but you're carrying people's suitcases that are i mean i saw one you know a group of uh, of chinese people and and they were they looked to be about 25 years old and yet she's carrying their luggage up the road she's wow. 77 wow yeah. wow that's amazing so yeah. what would you say the most um jarring thing or surprising thing about china was for you you go into with at least some sort of expectation. And what was the biggest surprise? Well, you know, it's it's the Chinese uh, economy has grown and and there has been so much wealth accumulated there over the last 25, 30 years that, you know, also the largest, most populous country in the world, 1.6 billion people. But, you know. My, my expectation is I wanted to see the real China. You know, I romanticize about seeing the wall, you know, and seeing the the um, terracotta soldiers and all those, again, what I, the checklist things, you know, you still have to see them. But what I was perhaps even even since my last trip is is to see the, you know, the the, the difference between the haves and the have nots. And these Chinese businessmen are such partiers. They go into these karaoke places and they will buy extremely expensive scotch. And, you know, when you're in there, they charge so much money. And and to see the, you know, almost um, haphazard throwing of money uh, for this, this party and getting drunk um, and then going out to a village and, and, and seeing these, you know, you know, you know, you know, people with wearing shoes that are uh, falling apart, and you know, you you you're seeing the the, and it's not so much poverty. And I think the Chinese government is keenly aware of, uh, you know, being a socialist government of of providing for the people, so that you know, I I never saw poverty so much like I would see in say Africa and parts of South America, but you still see this flagrant throwing of, of, of money around. I, I walked into a, in a, in a supermarket and it's like, this isn't of, and I'm not in any special area. I mean, I'm, I'm in Shanghai, but I was surprised. I'm a wine drinker. I love wine. And I go in there and on the shelf, 
you know, I see a bottle of French wine, you know, that, and I have to, you know, RMB is their, uh, their currency there, the Yuan. Um, and I have to t do the calculation, but, you know, here's this, this very, very, you know, first growth Bordeaux, uh, wine. It's just sitting on a su supermarket shelf for about $7,000. Whoa. Yeah. 7,000 US. US dollars. Wow. And, and. And it, and it may have been it may have been at the top shelf. Maybe there was a little bit of security on it, but there were other bottles that were five six hundred dollars. And again, this is a supermarket, not in so much. I mean, it's obviously. I mean, I must be in a neighborhood where where people have this kind of money. Um, and I can't imagine that somebody you know walking through is like, ah, oh, let's see, let's get some uh, lemons. <laughs> and, My wife uh, wanted me to pick up a bottle of Let's get some uh, some ramen noodles. And you want to get a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild? Uh, wow, seven grand. Let's go. You wow. know. Um, so, so that, that was kind of interesting to me. And then, and then in Beijing, there is this, um, you know, in, in, you know, famous, these cities for terrible air quality. I got real lucky the first day I got into Beijing and had, could actually see the sun and it wasn't so bad, but in the inner part of the, 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 the city is made in, in, in concentric rings that span out from the center and the very center, the inside the one ring, I guess you call it, is um, is the older part of the city. It's where the, in fact, I think the center of that is the, um, is the, is the big palace, you know, the um, uh, forbidden city there. Mm -hmm. And that is the, the number one, you know, ring that, so that's, everything radiates from that. So they've kind of preserved in, around that area, the traditional hutongs. These are these courtyard um, homes that people live in, uh, lived in for, for, you know, hundred years or more, 200 years. Um, and then it gets to be more metropolitan and high rises as you go each further ring out. So, you know, but when I was in that, um, in that center area, I was amazed to find as, as I see in, in most cities across the world, an expat community that's really thriving in a, in a country where, you know, you'd, you'd think of all the places you could be an expat, you know, China is gotta be the most difficult. The government is watching you all the time. It's difficult to run a business. It's, I mean, there's just a lot of things that, uh, I, I, I have no mind of, but yet, you know, meeting a guy from Duluth, Minnesota, <laughs> who is running, who's selling grilled cheese sandwiches from a shop there. And a guy from Brooklyn had another shop selling meatballs <laughs> and, great. Yeah. So, so, you know, you, you, you got these, these, and, and a lot of the, the expat, as I learned, you know, because there was a, there was a lot of them come over here there to teach English, even though they're, they don't speak Chinese. They'll just, they'll just teach you know, a lot of, a lot of people come to, to go to China to, to make a little money, get experience to the culture by teaching English. And during the Olympics and leading up to the Olympics, 2006 to 2008, you know, the, the, um, the expat, population grew dramatically. I don't I forget what the actual numbers are. And a lot of them chose to stay. This is another guy that I met, a Texan. And and actually, um, this this guy, I can't remember his name, but he is making pies. <laughs> the name of his shop, it's in it's in Beijing. You can look on it on, on the um, you know your your listeners can Google. It's called Rager Pies. Like, you know, we're gonna have a Rager tonight. And, you know, he make apple pies, he makes the cherry pies. So, you know, he's bringing this, you know, Texan America product into the hutongs. And I asked him and he married a, a Chinese lady 
And I, I asked him, do you want to go back to the U.S.? And he says, not at all. And when I asked him who are most of his customers, because the pies aren't cheap, and he says they are mostly Chinese people buying the pies. Really? And he, you know, he has his his his, his Chinese wife is real passionate about coffee. You know, they do cold brew coffee, and and man, I mean, they are just uh, she is like a coffee encyclopedia. She speaks good English as well. But yeah, that's what was surprising to find that you know a, a quite a a different. Uh, experience then just maybe about eight hours south where I, you know, ran into a community of um, people still living in caves. So at one wow. point in the Jiangxi province, I, I get this all wrong. Somebody will correct me. We'll forgive you. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's south of um, uh, Tianan, Tianin, Tianin, where, where the Apple iPhones are made. So right. south by a couple hours there, people still live in caves. So, of course, I've got to go see these caves. I ride my motorcycle up the hills, over around. And uh, when I stop on the side of the road, try to get a layout of where these people are, suddenly kids about six to ten years old, five or six of them, appear out. And I look up, and they're above me on another, uh, you know, like a little cliff looking down. And they all are got, like, tablets or iPads, and they're taking pictures of them. <laughs> and then From when their I caves? Do, <laughs> then when I finally do get into one of these caves, Travis, that – there's like a sofa with a microfiber uh, uh, fabric on there. They've got flat screens hanging inside the caves, and I'm thinking this is this is not the you know the rural, hardworking Chinese uh, cave dwellers that I had you know seen on a Discovery net, you know network program ten years ago. But things have changed in China, even in the caves. Wow, they are modern suburbanite cave dwellers. How cool. Yeah. You know, it must be a blast to have to kind of do the research and prepare, since you were doing this for a, a documentary, to look for these kind of things. Because I'm sure there's a lot of things that you come across like that you might not have learned about or sought out if you weren't doing it for a documentary. Yeah, you know, and 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 the thing is, and, and what we're doing is is it's a it's a, we call it a docu series. So this would be a series. Um, so each country would be a different show. So imagine, you know, think Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. Mm -hmm. So it's a documentary series where we do explore culture. We do explore a little bit of the cuisine. You know, we'll leave Bourdain and Andrew Zimmern to do that. But we're trying to really bring out, you know, things like those. Uh, cave dwellers like the woodblock printer and and yeah and it was difficult because this is a very small production i i i kind of insisted and they agreed you know i didn't didn't take too much twisting the arm that that in order to have the experience that i usually have when i travel and and connect with people you can't have a bunch of big cameras and producers and directors in your face right. you know, it needs to be cool so we had you know we had a crew of four and um and even that was kind of a a lot, but um, but we the one thing we didn't have, and in and in retrospect, it would have been you know we we did as much research as we could, but we didn't have a um, you know kind of a dedicated um, uh, research producer, associate producer, you know, tasked with let's find these places. Right. So in in many ways, just like my original journey. You know, we kind of had to uncover this stuff organically as you went along. And as I mentioned before, how do you how do you connect with people? You got to be curious and you have to ask a lot of questions of people. Fortunately, we had a translator um, that could could help. I mean, we went to this um, 
this city uh, that's one of the older, you know, one of the oldest cities that's well preserved, a walled city. Uh, Pingyao is the name of it in um, in in China, and you know, we didn't really know anybody there, and riding into this walled city, finding a place to stay, meeting the locals that sit around the street corner and watch the people go by. You know, I finally ended up, um, you know, walking into a little grocery stand and the, 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 the husband and wife that owned it, the elderly people had a son who had just quit his job at, um, Foxconn, the people that make the iPhones. So it was like all of a sudden I said, this is an interesting story because, you know, you hear a lot about human rights, um, sure. and poor working conditions and the slave driving kind of of, of Chinese manufacturing and and, uh, and that. But it gave me a chance to kind of look at that. And he did not um, have uh, anything negative to say about his experience there. And, and if things didn't work out in helping his family build up this grocery business, he would be happy and told me that the employer would happily let him come back. He did say that he met his girlfriend there and she was still in the factory and he kind of missed her and was thinking of marrying her. So these, <laughs> these are the kind of Very things cool. that you learn and you kind of get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So after that, you actually obviously came back for a break, but then it wasn't long and you actually uh, took off for Iceland and like you said, 16 countries up there. So tell me a little bit about that. How, how was Iceland? So th th that was great. We, we, we came back from China. We actually edited a full length pilot of the show, showed it to some people, got some feedback and... Um, and, you know, we, this show is not sold yet. The, the tentative name of it is Border to Border um, because you, you go from border to border. And um, and I had always had in my mind, I always wanted to go to Iceland. So while we're pitching the show to networks and studios, I was still planning on this trip to Iceland. And, and as we got some feedback from them, uh, we learned that maybe we could um, illustrate uh, uh, you know, expand upon the idea of border to border. So Iceland was a perfect place. So I shipped the bike to Iceland in uh, end of June last year, flew to flew from the East Coast and um, met up with it there. And this is July should be the most mild weather, the warmest time of year. Boy, but it was biting cold and I had that rain and sleet and things like that. And and I camped as much as I could as well. Um, so it, it was, you know, there's three or four days, um, you know, in the uh, in Reykjavik, you know, in the capital there, uh, having great food, meeting people. Um, there's a there's a one of the most famous rock and roll bands from probably the 80s and uh, did a did a couple tours with you too. It was a band called the Sugar Cubes. It's where Bjork kind of started. Yeah. Um, I got a chance, and this is again that organic thing. It's like, hey, there's got to be somebody here from the Sugar Cubes. Maybe Bjork is here. And but we met Siggy. His name is Siggy, and he's the drummer and kind of the co-founder of the Sugar Cubes. And went to his studio and drank beers with him. And also that uh, Rick here, that uh, what is it called, Brennevin? You know, this Iceland schnapps. 
made with caraway seeds. It's, it's either love it or you hate it, but it's a very, <laughs> it's, it's like an 80, 90 proof, you know, fire water kind of a drink, but there I am. And with Siggy hanging out and then making it out to the rural part, you know, going to see the, uh, volcanoes going to see, um, the uh, fishing villages you know i went to a bucolic uh resort you know just like three room house way in the middle of this peninsula this fjord and uh run by a family for three generations and um you know running the equivalent of a bed and breakfast but all the food and everything is raised right there i mean even the dishes were served with flowers that the woman picked from her field there just little tiny little flowers that are all edible uh, so, so that was good. And the, and the roads, you know, you know, now, um, um, you've got, there's a big ring road that goes around the entire, uh, country, the Island of Iceland. And then you have <clears throat> varying roads and varying kinds of conditions. So, uh, we were able to, um, uh, you know, get to a little bit to the interior. We, we didn't have as much time and the weather was a little bit of a factor. So I, I, I couldn't get as far in as I wanted, but in that whole spirit of connecting with the culture and the people, Iceland was awesome. Um, those thermal pools, it's a, it's a, you know, these little hot tubs. That, that is like a, a cultural phenomenon. Everybody at the end of the day, you know, every house, well, most of them have these things. And, and that's the social area. You get in your bathing suit and you sit in these, you know, naturally heated thermal pools. Um, so really cool. Uh, place. Yeah, I, I want, I'd love apparently. to go there like right now because of the, um, uh, I'd like, you know, you know, when you go in the summertime, you don't see the Northern lights and now would be the Northern lights. I, I, I went on a, a fully, um, a sustainable, um, kind of a green carbon neutral say, you know, a hundred year old sailing vessel to go watch for whales and, you know, and the little puffins, you ever see these little, they're like, they're kind of the equivalent of a, you know, a penguin that flies, right. but they're, yeah. Um, oh, I could talk on and on, but, uh, that's but cool. I, yeah. Iceland looks that. amazing. Yeah. Kurt and his family went out there just recently and the pictures he brought back and the tales that he was telling just made me want to take a motorcycle up there and tour it and just check it out. And you got to do it. How cool. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, uh, that is an experience. I mean, it, it's difficult to get out there, you know, it's a, it's a, and it's such a small place. You can ride around that whole island, the country, you know, in two days. Right. Um, if, if you don't, you know, if you don't stop, uh, but you want to stop, I was there two and a half weeks. And then I took a, a ferry. There's one boat leaves once a week from the, uh, Eastern part of Iceland and, uh, put the bike on that and went to the Faroe Islands, which is a Danish protectorate uh, in the North Atlantic there. Um, and then from there, uh, continued on, spent a few days at the Faroe Islands, went to a rock and roll festival there. They call it the Woodstock of the North Atlantic. That was real fun. And then over to, uh, Denmark from Denmark. I, um, you know, I'll just quickly, you know, tell you the route just in, in uh, we can get into any of this, but you know, Denmark to Sweden, to Norway, to Finland, cross the Baltic sea to Estonia, then Latvia, and um, Lithuania, and then into um, into Poland, and then from Poland to Slovakia, into Hungary, and then I went east again into Romania, south to Bulgaria, cross from Bulgaria into Macedonia, Macedonia to Albania, and then uh, Albania into Greece, 
and ended up in, um, you know, taking about a week on the, on the Greek islands. So, you know, total, uh, um, kind of the comfort, the end of the trip, having the most, uh, you know, just like, okay, chill, let's drink some good <laughs> wine, eat some food. And then here's the real kicker, Travis. As I came back from the islands and, and met, you know, some local people there, I decided to leave my motorcycle in Athens. So as I sit, my, my, my 650 Dakar is sitting in a garage in an office building in Athens. So that means, you know what that means, Travis? You have plans to return. You, you smart I, man, you. I have to go back. I love yeah. it. That's great. So which of those countries was your favorite uh, between Iceland and uh, all the way down through Greece? You know, Iceland's incomparable, and uh, I, I have to say I've got a really warm spot in that, and that was the beginning of the journey, and we also – I was there with my film crew I've really got to love, and uh, and then the rest of the journey, uh, I had a, a buddy that joined me for part of it, and then um, – but most of the time I was on my own. Um, you know the country that really kind of – I guess sometimes when we have expectations, when they're way exceeded, you know, by a by – a, 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 high factor they tend to stick in your mind more and 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 it goes back like when people ask me about forks what was one of my favorite in syria uh which i did do but way back um before the the conflict right. always is like one of my favorite places and on this trip romania i was kind of a little apprehensive i'm like romania i don't know what am i getting in romania but they have got just some incredible roads it's very inexpensive. Your dollar goes far. Um, and, you know, at least in my short week or so that I was there, um, the, the people were open. They shared. And uh, I had great weather the, in the north. I, Bucharest is an in, interesting city. They used to call it the, the Paris of Eastern Europe. But my favorite was this place called Cluj-Napak, I think known just as Cluj, and that's the kind of the capital of Transylvania. I was going to ask if you, if go, you went to Transylvania. Yeah. Everybody that goes there has to you. Yeah, exactly. You've got to go to Transylvania and, and learn about Count Vlad, uh, Dracula. <laughs> and there are castles that's got the scenery all around, and that that was um, absolutely a great experience. You know, on the other side of it, you know, in terms of at least the cost, Norway is probably one of the most expensive countries I was in. But, you know, the 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 ride is very good roads, a lot of rain, but some of the most stunning scenery on the planet is Norway. So from just a pure visual, I loved Norway. I rode all the way to the North Cape, Nordkap, which is the furthest northernmost point on the European continent. And that was kind of a uh, a little goal. So there's a bucket list item. I just wanted to get there and just, you know, gaze off. I'd be, you know, not five, 600 miles from the North pole or something like that. When you get up there, maybe a little bit further, but not yeah, much. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Well, I would say if you ever need somebody to also ride a motorcycle with your little crew and carry something, then you know who to call. I'm going to get Travis is on it. Man. Don't be yeah. bashful. Don't be bashful. So I have to ask in Iceland, cause Kurt is going to want to know, did you yeah. try the rotten shark? So, you know, <laughs> uh, the the rotten shark is – there's a couple things. I, to answer your question, no, I didn't try the rotten shark and, and largely because um, 
they serve that mostly in the winter time. Oh, really? Because okay. they don't have um, uh, they can't get the fresh f- food in there. And and there was another item I gotta remember that is also famous uh, for uh, being disgusting. Uh, that's another disgusting <laughs> Iceland food item. Um, so no, I didn't get it. And I know Anthony Bourdain did on one of his episodes. And he even today will say that's the single most disgusting thing. And he eats anything that uh, he didn't. So we couldn't really find it. And then I think on our last day, we ended up going into this equivalent of a, you know, of a gas station uh, convenience store. And there in the back, you know, hanging were like uh, freeze dried or cellophane packed um um food and i was told that that was the the shark but we didn't we didn't buy it we were we we had an agenda but um did kurt try it he did yeah i believe he said alcohol helped uh take the taste out of his mouth so we when in doubt drink alcohol when you eat rotten shark I understand. I don't know. I don't think I need to try it personally. I think there's a a few things out there I can just leave untouched, and the rotten shark might be one of them. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm going to say. You know, I I probably should have done that at least for the sake of the camera, if we could have really worked that out. But um, but I did not. Well, there's your reason to go back. You have a reason to go back to Greece. Now you have a reason to go back to Iceland. So not. You know, we got that problem solved. Well, let's talk about podcasts. Um, you've been doing a podcast for quite a while now. I think 2006, you've been dabbling in the podcast world. So I wanted to introduce our listeners to the World Rider Podcast. So tell me a little bit about what you guys do. It's not all about motorcycles, right? No, not at all. You know, the, the, I, I, I tend to be an early adopter in so many things. You know, I had a blog back in 2002 before people knew what it was in podcasting, nobody, 2006. And originally, and you know, there's still an archive of that on the on iTunes and on, on Stitcher and the usual places for the World Rider podcast. But it started off as uh, the audio journal, if you will, of of. As I traveled around, I tried to be as consistent. You know, when you travel alone, I meet people. I would interview them, and I'd produce a, a a little podcast that was part me, you know, describing where I was, and then meeting people on the road and and having them share some stories. And um, I, I think as I did travels over that three years, I must have done about you know twenty podcasts between two thousand six and two thousand nine. Then when I got back. You know, it kind of fell a little bit to the wayside, and I, I picked it up when I had um, uh, a, a traveler, a guy I met when I was in Ethiopia, who is actually from Finland, and he was riding a bicycle around the world. And I met him in the middle of nowhere in Ethiopia. And two years later, after I'd already completed my journey and I was living here in, in North San Diego, he shows up at my door. And uh, it was a great reunion because we had briefly met that two passing ships, you know, that we actually stopped and talked to each other and then continued over email sharing our stories. And he showed up here. So I put him on on the podcast and I realized that that the 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 World Rider podcast is not just about me and my journey. It's about everybody's journey. So I've had. Uh, authors on that's never even been on a motorcycle. I've had travelers. Uh, one guy that uh, over the last 10 years, um, he has lived in a different country for one year, him and his wife, 
move to a different country every year. And he has some great interesting stories. And um, so what I, I like to do is get people that travel is a passion, but yet it's become, you know, it's either absorbed them or it's become part of their work. I had a young 23-year-old, um, 24-year-old um, guy in here who, who has been around the world learning how to make wine. And uh, that was my last podcast. So yeah, I was just listening to that one, actually. I really enjoyed it, actually. Here I am tuning in, thinking I'm going to hear about motorcycles and world travel and people. And what I heard about or what I learned a lot about was about wine. That was a very fascinating show, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's it, it it was fun, and uh, I was I was surprised that um, you know he was as um, articulate too, because obviously a good you know good podcast, a good interview, as you know, is you know you, there has to be a little bit of connection. Of course, I like wine, but um, you know I I suggested the podcast just because I had met him in Greece. Well, you heard the story. I met him in Greece, and then it turns out he's from San Diego, so another uh, passing traveler. Um, coming through. And then, then I've had Neil Bailey, you know, who is probably, you know, one of the, one, one of the famous motorcycle journalists. He's yeah. from the UK. Yep. And a, he is a very fascinating um, guy who's ridden more different kinds of motorcycles. So, you know, we do get into motorcycling, but I, 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 I want, you, you know, your listeners and anyone listening to that. And, and I, and I'm not really consistent because of, I obviously travel so much and trying to get it. You guys have been great by the way. I mean, I, how many, what are, what podcasts are you up to now? Oh, we 200? have 244 out now. Yeah. <laughs> 244. So, <laughs> you know, along. and I was, I was your sixth uh, podcast. You so are I number like, six. Wow, that's, yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, consistency certainly helps, but my podcast, when I do find somebody really interesting, uh, I, I, I bring them on and uh, if you subscribe on iTunes, you, you'll you see that they, they'll come in on a not very regular basis, but, uh, but yeah. But worth listening to anyway. Yeah, we had uh, yeah. Neil Bailey on too. He was actually episode 19, so uh, oh, Neil's an interesting okay. guy. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to get yeah. all of the adventure sports enthusiasts around the world eventually, so eventually you'll hear them on our show too. <laughs> yeah okay there so, you go no yeah. good show I, I enjoyed listening to it and like i said i i enjoy wine i am by no means a connoisseur and, and know what i'm doing um i will probably not go buy that seven thousand dollar bottle in china but i learned uh, a lot about <laughs> wine just listening to you guys talking about it. it was a good show so so good job i like it well if you guys want to check out uh Alan's World Rider podcast, just looking him up. Um, he's got a website, worldrider.com, and you can find his podcast, of course, there and iTunes and Stitchers. So, Alan, you are heading out in a couple of days back down to South America, and you're not taking a motorcycle. What is it you're doing? I think this is pretty cool. You know, I am going to South America for about two and a half weeks to Argentina, actually, with my mother. My mother's 80 years old, and she has traveled. She's been to Europe. She's been to Japan, Korea, and um, you know, as 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 a few countries under her belt. But she's never been to South America, Travis. And um, my my her husband, my stepdad Howard, passed away uh, in November, and he had been um, you know ill for several years. So my mom hadn't really been out and. Um, we got to talking over the holidays and I said, mom, you know, you know, when, you know, obviously when you, when you look at, at, um, something 
you know, bad or a big change in your life, you know, you have to have that recovery period and you have to mourn and, and that, but yet you also need to understand that, that and at the end of every road, you find a, the beginning of another road. And I said, let's go. I've been to Argentina several times. Um, I can be a great tour guide and what a great thing to just be with my mom, uh, who we all love our mom so much and to spend that much time, you know, later in our, in our, in her life and, and, and me as much, you know, as an older guy now to, to have that experience. So we're going to do, you know, Argentina is really one of the most diverse countries, um, you know, in, in South America, because you do have the Patagonia, which is, um, you got glaciers and, you know, Alpine, uh, scenery, big mountains, the Andes. You also have Buenos Aires, which is like a European city infused with that Latin culture too. And then you've got Mendoza, which is a wine region and also a uh, farming and just a, a real cultural center of uh, of culinary and food and wine in the center of, of Argentina. And then you've got the jungles up in um, near Paraguay and Brazil in the north eastern part where the Iwazu Falls are, you know, which are the uh, largest, at least from a number of volume of water, waterfalls in the world competing very close to Victoria Falls in, in Zambia there. So we're going to go to those four places to really get a taste of four distinct different parts of Argentina. And, um, and of course, we're going to see a tango show because you got to do that when you're in there. So this is a different kind of journey. I mean, she did ask if I was going to get the sidecar hooked up. Uh, <laughs> That'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we, we were unable to do it. So uh, a, a total different kind of, uh, uh, of experience, although I've, I've, I've traveled, you know, without the bike many places. But uh, yeah, it's just spend time with family, you know. It's, it's at the end of the day, and I always tell my friends this, you know, who are – you know, come to me. He's like, Alan, I think I'm getting a new car. I'm like, ah, well, you know, don't labor too hard about the decision. I says, you know, things are not as important as experiences and I'd rather invest in those. And this yeah. is one of those that I'm investing in. Yep. Well said. Well, I think it's going to be an amazing time. You're a great son for taking her down there. I think she's going to have an absolute blast. And, and I think, you know, since you left the, uh, the BMW over in Greece, I imagine you can probably find somebody over there with a sidecar and maybe mom needs to go pick that motorcycle up with you absolutely wouldn't that be a hoot gosh <laughs> oh, that'd be yeah. awesome that'd be great all right well good deal man it was uh, good catching up with you you've done a, a ton of things since the last time we talked and it's so good to hear about everything you've done and i wish you all the best in luck in getting that show out there and i uh, i will be first on the list to uh to want to watch it absolutely that yeah and I, I will keep you uh uh travis and, and kurt updated on 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 stuff. When I come back from Argentina in, in uh, mid to late March, we were meeting with some uh, people up in LA and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, some feedback and uh, and maybe maybe be one more closer to getting that on the air. Yeah, I'm very absolutely. excited. I would love to, to, to bring, you know, it's kind of like bring Forks, the book, to life, adding sound sure. and motion. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Well, definitely keep us surprised and uh, we'll put it out on our show when it's when it's ready. So I'm sure our our listeners would love to uh, to look in and, and see what it is you're up to out there and in real film. So, all right, he's Alan Carl. The book is Forks, and you can find him at worldrider.com. You can also find him on Facebook at worldrider.pro and Instagram and Twitter at worldrider. So go follow Alan and see what he's up to, and maybe he'll get that show so we can all see it. So 
Alan, thanks so much for spending the evening with me. I really enjoyed catching up with you. Travis, it's always great. I'm glad we do it. And congratulations on the podcast. I, um, I, I need to, uh, I need to, to, to see who's coming next and following again, because, uh, you guys get some really interesting things in the world of adventure sports. So appreciate it. Well, we try. It's our, uh, it's our desire to inspire. So listen in and, uh, see what else maybe you can get inspired to try something other than motorcycling. But I think you, uh, I think you provide enough inspiration for others as you're doing it. So. <laughs> All right, Alan. Have a good evening. Okay. All right, Travis. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventure sports podcast dot com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>